Good morning, everybody. So, from life, we're going to become more grounded, which feels a bit uncomfortable <coughs> at Medicine Unboxed, because we're not supposed to be grounded, but Earth takes us there. And I feel somewhat daunted by the title of this session, but I'm very relieved to have two people who will guide us through this, um, and eminent speakers. Um, Peter Stanford is a writer, journalist, and broadcaster who has written very extensively on subjects ranging from the devil to Cardinal Basil Hume, and more recently, um, on graveyards, and perhaps that's what qualifies him most for joining in this discussion today. And Jay Carver is an extraordinary archaeologist who also has a huge body of work behind him, but most recently working with Crossrail, um, and has the, I suspect, enviable task of seeing London's um, revealed as it's been dug up through that project and uh, subjected to his forensic examination of what's revealed below that surface. So I wonder if I could first ask Peter to say a few words, followed by Jay. Okay, thank you, Sean. Um, uh, Earth, Earth for me, uh, uh, as a title, I suppose the first thing that, that, that occurred to me uh, when I was thinking about it are those lines, I don't know whether anyone else here is Catholic, but I suppose I ought to come out at the beginning. And um, uh, uh, with that thing that happens on Ash Wednesday when you go and they put the cross on your, on your forehead and say, you are dust and unto dust you shall return, uh, which always, um, I always find very moving. Uh, when I was a teenager, I used to wipe it off as soon as I went out in case anyone knew. But, um, uh, but I... Uh, um, yes, hold on, let me put my glasses on. Um, Yes, I suppose I mean, that idea uh, very much goes back to, to a kind of religious idea that Christianity has, that Judaism, in fact, that all religions have. And obviously, the important thing to say about, uh, about religions is that on 99% of things, they all agree, and that it's uh, very few things that they disagree on, but they're the things that we hear about. Um, that idea that they all have, really, in different forms, about the disposability of the body. The body is unimportant, the body is somehow the shell, and it is, it is the soul, the spirit, whatever it is is called, uh, that, that is most important. So therefore, it really is just a question of uh, you know, not being obsessed by your outward shell. Um, which, of course, uh, the idea that we all become dust... Now, I, I should apologise. Having come out as a Catholic, I went to a Christian brother's school where they didn't allow us to do biology because it was far too dangerous. Um, so I'm not great on science here, so I apologise in advance. I think I'm really in the wrong place, which is why I'm feeling rather nervous. Um, but, um, but as I understand it, we, we don't always rot down. It, 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 our bones remain certainly a great deal longer. Um, one of the uh, things that I covered in the book about cemeteries was the Mungo Lady in Australia, um, who is a, a, a set of bones that are 26,000 years old, I think. Um, they tried to cremate her and obviously did it really badly, because uh, the, bones, the bones still remain. But I, 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 I stand to be corrected on this. I imagine if you, if you burn bones, perhaps they, they do all go down to dust in the end. So perhaps there is some truth in that. Um, but, uh, but, but I think it's, um, it's worth thinking about why uh, religion or why human beings, because uh, 
this idea of burying in the earth, or indeed scattering on the earth as we do now, which is very much our habit, or becoming our habit. Um, uh, my parents obviously were Catholic, uh, hence uh, where I am, and were very keen on burial. I think Catholics weren't allowed to be cremated until, um, until the 1930s or 1940s, uh, for all sorts of peculiar reasons. Um, uh, I remember at their, both their funerals, um, uh, standing at the graveside and looking into the earth, that, that you know, six-foot-down thing, and looking at the sort of brown, black clay, and it seeming incredibly gloomy and bleak, really. And again, anyone who'd had a, a, a traditional uh, Christian upbringing, certainly, uh, would have had an awful lot of talk about hell and anything sort of underneath the surface of the earth down you go. Think of Dante's Inferno, the, those nine levels of hell as you go down. And although uh, we didn't do Dante either at my Catholic school, but, but, um, uh, but, but, but we very much had those, those, that, 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 that idea that, 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 that down you went. And so the earth and death is, is, is in, 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 in some ways in Christianity and, in, and, and in religions as well, is seen as very, very bleak and dark. Um, uh, sorry, glasses back on again. And there's also, there's also I think, as well, a, a sense of kind of hiding away almost. Um, uh, I mean, death is, death is in, in one way, <coughs> death is one of the reasons for religion, because death is one of the things that we, that we struggle to understand, although it was being explained from this seat very well before. Um, but, but it's one of those things that, that we struggle to understand. So there's a sense in which we push it away with kind of rituals and ceremonies and kind of religious ideas. So the idea of burying in the earth has become a sort of hiding away almost of death. And I think there's an element of that in, in cemeteries. I'll come on to that in a moment. Um, but, of course, the other idea about the earth um, that, that, again, religions have is an idea of fertility. You see right at the book of Genesis, right at the very beginning of the sort of Jewish and Christian um, holy books, the idea that we have stewardship of God's creation. Um, and that all the earth is a kind of blessing. You know, the, the Garden of Eden, the sort of the, the kind of earth there, was a kind of blessed and sacred space. So the, there are those sort of conflicting ideas, really. Um, and one of the um, uh, well, two two quick ideas to share with you there. One is that in um, in ancient Egypt, I mean, we always tend to see black as a very negative colour, hence soil being kind of very dark as a negative colour. I um, mean, ancient Egypt, uh, black was was seen as a very positive colour because that was the time of year when the Nile Delta the Nile would, um, would uh, burst its banks onto the delta and would spread all the, the, the sort of alluvial matter or whatever it is, sorry, scientists, again, probably the wrong word, but you know what I mean, the fertile stuff from the bottom of the river over the, um, over the earth, and it was black, and that was good, and red was a very negative colour because that's when it wasn't spread there. And, the, and another idea about earth being very positive that I came up, and it's just something that I did write very briefly, and I'm not reading this because I think it's so brilliant, but because Sean asked me to write read it, um, but it was just... It was it's just a, 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 a thought that I want, uh, that I once came across, uh, it comes up quite often here. Um, it occurred to me when I was going around the Commonwealth War Graves and there was a lone gardener there hoeing around those graves there. And I've just written here, and an interview I once did with a memoir, memoir writer called Barney Bardsley comes to mind. She'd cope with her husband's long, slow, drawn-out death from cancer in his 40s by discovering gardening first planting sunflowers in the window boxes of her South London flat and then getting herself an allotment. In the face of death, I remember her saying, the experience of plunging her hands into the wet earth was an act of hope, its power to give new life, something being transferred to her and providing with her reason to keep living. 
There is something of that here in these war cemeteries. The earth may have swallowed and encased so many young men, but it does also give something back in the fields that now grow over these battlefields that feed us and in the arresting sorrow of these graveyards with a determined response of never again from all who visit. So there the, the, the can be something um, very positive there. It, briefly, the other, the other thing uh, that, that occurs to me, um, religion seeing earth as, uh, as sacred, um, it, it's, it's, there's always a gap between sort of religion as it's written and religion as it's, as it's kind of institutionally practised in a way. And I think there is that, that sense of, um, of, of, of earth, earth being a kind of sacred resource to us. But I think what, what has tended to happen uh, with institutional religion is it's tried to kind of make some bits of earth more, more holy than other bits. Um, so this whole idea of consecrated ground around cemeteries uh, that you get, that somehow th- this, this is the good bit and the other, other bit is the bad bit. Um, and that is in, in many ways, or, or, or certainly in... in uh, we were talking about four billion years beforehand, and I'm afraid I can only really do sort of 2,000 years in a way, uh, which is, which is <laughs> failings of Christianity, but anyway... Um, uh, <laughs> Um, uh, it does try and do the other bits, but it gets in a terrible muddle when it does. But anyway, um, um, if, if you look back at what, what, what was around when Christianity was there, you would have had sort of... I'm always slightly nervous of the word pagan as well, because it, it, it has slightly negative overtones. Um, but anyway, let's, just, let's say pagan for, for brevity's sake. Um, uh, sacred groves, they would have had the idea that, you know, near, near where people were living, there would have been sacred groves of trees, um, which was, were, were rather open. And, and again, it's celebrating that sacredness of, 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 uh, of the earth and that's where the dead were taken. And what Christianity did, it was marvellously successful at this, um, was it sort of came, and it didn't try and wipe things out, it just tried to take them over and sort of slowly obliterate them in the end. So what Christianity did with these sacred groves is it would, um, it would often put a well in the middle and say it was a holy well that a saint had been to, and, and that, that somehow the sacred grove then became a lot of uh, rural, uh, medieval rural uh, cemeteries that you'll see um, around the countryside originally would have been sacred groves. So they, w- they would take that over. And then they start a process of narrowing it down, often by, by putting walls around it. Um, they would say they were putting walls there for a practical reason. Um, and it's believed that um, wolves became, um, uh, became extinct in this country once they started walling off graveyards because... Well, you can imagine why. There was nothing much there for them to feast on if they were shut out. But I think it was much more important that... I mean, I think there, was, there were... Uh, there were practical concerns which came much later, really, of public health, and you get that much more in the 19th century with the municipal cemetery movement. Um, there's that wonderful Andrew Miller novel, um, which I've slightly forgotten what it's called now, but the one set in the cemetery in Paris, where all the cemetery in the middle of the town, where it is so overcrowded, the bodies are so high, that the cellars of, of, of um, pure... Uh, that the cellars of um, houses are falling into it. Hence, Père Lachaise, uh, Napoleon, gave us, gave us these ordered public health cemeteries, which the Victorians took up with gusto. So that, there were good practical reasons for, um, uh, for uh, shutting it off. But there were also um, elements of control around it, that, re- that, that institutional religion wanted to control people's access to earth and death. And so you had to have done what the church told you should do in your life, otherwise it would refuse to bury you in consecrated ground. So in a medieval village, the body would have been brought on a simple bier to the lich gate of the church, and and the vicar literally would have said yes or no, depending on that person's life, and they would be cast into oblivion. So there were better bits of the earth to do with death 
than other bits. And you know, the worst possible thing that could happen to you was you wouldn't be buried in consecrated ground. That was the, that was the worst fate of all. They often had those funny little bits at the side where um, uh, un unbaptized children would be the souls going into limbo. So there was that bit. Um, but I think there was also a sense as well, and again, this comes back to us wanting to hide, um, hide death, um, of shutting off that bit of the earth that was to do with death. And most cemeteries will have walls around them. The Victorians, in particular, built very high walls around cemeteries. Um, it was an idea that, that the living didn't really need to think about death or would be too disturbed about death in some ways if, if they saw that shut off. So the city of the living and the city of the dead, often cheek by jowl, but, but somehow kind of separated by, almost by a different set of rules. Um, that you, you would have a kind of you know, a secular world and then you would, have, um, you would have this world which was almost like a little bit of, of God's domain on earth somehow. Very, very, very peculiar idea of dividing up the earth that way. Um, which, of course, uh, we, we, we have moved beyond now. I mean, one of the, I mentioned the Commonwealth War Graves there. One of the things that was fascinating about the Commonwealth War Graves, uh, and as you drive throughout, throughout northern France, is one of the things they very, very specifically wanted to do is not build walls around them. They wanted people, people to be able to see them, and uh, not because they wanted to remind them of their own mortality all the time, but, but of, 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 of what people had sacrificed for them. Don't shut it off. And I think it's very striking as you drive through those roads in northern France. They are all completely open. You can see them. And, you know, it, it is, I'm sure most of you have been to them, but it is just the most extraordinary thing when you stand there and you see those sea of, 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 of graves and um, a dead sea, Rudyard Kipling called it, and you, see, um, and you see grave after grave after grave, literally all with the same date on it. And you go along a row and every single one of them died on the same day. It's, it's making mortality much more much more real. And I think we've probably we've got much better about that. Having criticised the Victorians or said they wanted to hide it, another of their great ideas, they, these great model cemeteries they built, you know, there's a magnificent seven around London, Highgate. Actually, I can't remember. I've, I'll get the seven wrong and it'll take me five minutes to get them, so we haven't got time for that. But they, these seven that they built, one of them, um, Abney Park in Stoke Newington, which is wonderful, they had the idea that um, as well as it being a, a, a place for the dead, it would also be a place for living, that you'd go for a walk round it. It would be somewhere you'd take your Sunday stroll and it would teach you something, so you'd learn about life and death and earth. And, of course, the earth bit there as well, they had a particular educational didactic idea, which was they would plant an A to Z arboretum in there, of every tree from A to Z, so we can do ash. And, again, we didn't do trees at school either, so I can't think of a tree that began with Z. Uh, but they would do it all the way through. And, of course, the wonderful thing now is if you go there, it's because they planted so many trees, it's completely overgrown as you go around. It's rather creepy as you go around the graves and this sort of jungle almost. They could film, I'm a celebrity in there. Perhaps they do, actually. Who knows? When you're wandering around, it could be uh, tucked away in there. So that point... And I suppose the final image of, of, of kind of death in our midst, death and earth. I mean, some societies, particularly Southern European societies or Spanish societies, bury above the earth, uh, stack graves above the earth. And I was in Central America and some. We went to Guatemala. And in the cities there, or the towns there, the graveyards are usually at the edge of the city, but all buried above the ground and all painted very bright colours. The sense of that, that death is somehow something to be celebrated. And frankly, if you are Christian, if you are Catholic, if you have a belief in afterlife, uh, perhaps we shouldn't regard death as something to be hidden away and not talked about and, 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 and rather gloomy. Perhaps we should be celebrating it, because that, that is actually what, 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 the, what these faiths say about death. They, 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 they talk about a greater immortality somewhere else. So... From a, sorry, very simple start of dust to dust. Uh, I, I've ended up there. That's, that's, that's a, 
a, a few thoughts around the, uh, the idea of Earth and, and mortality. Um, I'm going to stop now, and hopefully we can discuss them further. But just as a starting point, thank you. Thank you. I heard a few comments regarding Catholicism and it being run through with some strange ideas, which we might come back to. But um, uh, <laughs> over, <on> those. <laughs> over, over to Jay. Okay, uh, thank you very much. Good morning, everyone. Um, I was going to show a few slides. Shall I do that now, I think? Um, I've had the great privilege to work on the Crossroad Project for the last five years. And that experience, of course, involves a lot of artefacts, which archaeologists love. Uh, it involves ancient monuments and buildings and all evidence for early industry and all these things. But of course, one of the things we encounter uh, as well very often is human remains. So I thought I'd better bring Dr. McCoy with me today. Uh, just to make that link uh, to the, the medical conference, but also um, the mortality and, of course, facing human remains every day, um, you know, it makes you rather immune, I think, to, to what those human remains represent in terms of life and death. Uh, what I'm going to do is show and just discuss three different sites, and then perhaps these pictures that I'll show you will bring up some questions about about how people have been treated in different ways, in different times, being buried in the earth. Crossroad Route is a, a new railway right across London. Uh, it passes through the ancient uh, Roman city of London, medieval area as well, uh, and the post-medieval area. So hugely rich, in fact, in terms of the, the dead of London, stretching back 2,000 years, so I'm keeping within Peter's time frame here as well. Uh, the first site is the River Warbrook area. Now, the War Warbrook is a lost uh, London river, several of which used to exist as open streams, but now all generally buried over. Uh, the second site is a uh, site just outside the city, uh, Charterhouse Square, uh, a large cemetery known historically uh, to predate a Carthusian monastery, which you can see here. And the third site is the Bethlehem Churchyard, or Bedlam Burial Ground, which is um, an extraordinary preservation of thousands of Londoners from the 16th and 17th century. Okay, we're going to start with that River Walbrook, and you can just see in this image uh, these skulls appearing out of the river gravel. And one of the big questions we've had is how these, all these skulls got there. We weren't the first people either to come across them. Hundreds, in fact, have been recorded in the River Warbrook itself. This is one of the tunnels we were digging uh, just for utility cables. And, of course, we were going right through the bottom of this river. And the miners we had instructed to look out for anything unusual. <laughs> and they had plenty of opportunity to come and produce things for us. Uh, loads of these skulls. I mean, I think we had something like 60, in fact out of this very small excavation. So what are all these skulls doing there in the Roman period? Different types of burials as well. You can just see that gentleman holding a large pot. And there's something in that pot. And it turns out, uh, following help from the local hospital CT scanner, to be a completely intact uh, cremation burial. 
So, something going on here, different types of burial rites in this River Walbrook. Uh, so the other thing we found outside the river and alongside uh, the area is lots more human remains, and these are all dating to the Roman period. Lots of skulls, and pretty much only skulls, lined up here in a roadside ditch. Also, big collections of other human bones, as in this pit here. And then we started to come across as well intact burials. Uh, several examples like this one uh, of clearly execution by beheading. And just a question, you know, why place the skull there between the knees? What does that mean? Also, several of these execution burials had very heavy iron objects placed on them after death. So, we find shackles and chains, which are very, very typical of the type of chains used in Roman times for slavery. But these large iron rings you can see placed on the forearm or leg of an individual, completely different. So what is, what's that all about? Okay, the other site is Charterhouse Square. And this is a very important cemetery uh, lost, really, for the last 600 years that came to light during the Crossrail Works. And this is the um, surviving burials associated with a Black Death Emergency Cemetery, 1349. Hugely important event for London, for Europe, and in fact, um, you know, the whole country. Devastating. One of the things we didn't necessarily expect to see is the very orderly uh, and well-managed grave layout here, repeated in a second layer uh, above that first one. Hugely um, well-ordered graveyard from an event that was a massive catastrophe and tens of thousands of people dying, you know, literally within a few months. So an interesting response, we think. Uh, Bethlehem Churchyard, the final site. Huge cemetery, which probably, in its original one-acre size, preserved something like 30,000 Londoners from the 16th and 17th century. Massively overcrowded graveyard, a huge amount of intercutting of graves, and very, very difficult to unpick, although some of them are in rather wonderful condition. And you can see the use of coffins starting in the 16th century. In very rare cases as well, those coffins preserve people's initials and the date of burial, and this is something that is just starting in that period. People's attitude towards burial completely about to change. The use of coffins and the recording of names. And then even as well, a handful of gravestones like this one, belonging to Sarah Long. Now, these just don't occur, you know, in those earlier periods. We start, you know, in, in that period in Europe to use stones to commemorate people. And then, of course, we also start at that mid-16th century period to start writing down who's died 
in registers. And these are some of the first burial records. So we started doing that as well. Um, this example from the Bedlam Burial Ground is a mass burial. So here, again, we've probably got a plague event where 45, 50 people all buried on the same day, all together. Not as it appears in a, um, a very disordered fashion, but in fact each of these uh, individuals was in a coffin, and those coffins were all packed together carefully. Okay. One thing just to perhaps talk about as well, sorry, I've messed that up, is you know, what we can actually tell from these human remains, apart from looking at how people have been treated in death, is the type of studies we can do. And some of those involve very much a close collaboration you know, with many other professions, including microbiologists. So ancient DNA work as well, perhaps something else to talk about in our discussion. Thanks very much. Um, just before we move on to the body of the discussion, I just wonder, Peter, if you'd like to elaborate a little bit on the Star, star um, Trek reference. Because am I right in thinking the Jewish um, emblem used on uh, headstones quite frequently is Dr. Spock's. Um, is, is that right? Or? It's a particular, a particular group of, 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 of the priestly caste, the Cohens. That was the sign that they used, um, which is, it, it's that, isn't it? Sorry, I can't do it with my fingers, but I it goes like that. So it could never be a Star Trek follower. And you do something with your thumbs underneath it. You'll see that, and if you go around a Jewish cemetery, um, you'll see that on the graves that stand nearest, nearest the wall, uh, because the, the priestly caste, the, 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 the Cohens, uh, would all, always, um, they needed to be apart from everyone else. Um, in Jewish cemeteries, people were never, um, they never buried down, so you'd never have two or three in a grave like that. You always had to be buried separately, side by side. Um, in, in individual plots. But, I mean, as, as you see from the, those pictures there, the, the idea of individual burial uh, it was, was, uh, came in, in once we started getting ideas of the kind of individual with the kind of... Um, uh, with the Renaissance and then the Enlightenment and, the, and those things. So um, uh, different habits at different stages. But yeah, that, that's where Leonard Nimoy, who, of course, was Jewish, got that idea from, I gather, never having been a great watcher of Star Trek. Every, everything's linked. Um, <laughs> I just wonder if I could just initially explore a little bit around this concept of... I think the derivation of cemetery is dormitory in, in Greek. Am I right in yes. that? Yeah. And I, I think that, that idea of an area for sleep and the whole idea that the earth and, and cemeteries and your findings are not where somebody goes when they're dead, it's where they go when they're sleeping, is... I just wonder if there's something in that where people are trying to create immortality in cemeteries. Is there anything in that or not? Well, I think the, the immortality is in, is, in, is in terms of religious ideas, that, 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 uh, that death is not death, earthly bodily death is not death, that you are, you are sleeping ready. And, and, and yeah, the classic, uh, the classic, I suppose, I can say example, but whatever the right word is without wanting to offend anyone, is, is Jesus' resurrection, that, that, that on, on the last day, up you will all go and, and, and there will be eternal life. And I suppose at, it, at, its, uh, at its most basic, what nearly all religions teach, uh, well, certainly what, um, what the three monotheistic religions teach is that, um, is that this, this life is, is but a passing phase 
and that the really, really important thing uh, is, is, is afterlife. Um, and now, interestingly, certainly in the case of Christianity, it has gone to extraordinary lengths throughout its history to detail what bad afterlife is going to be like, so Dante's Layers of Hell again. And, of course, you know, who, who, who amongst us, if we read Dante, have read The Inferno? I mean, virtually no one reads The Paradiso because it's, it's, it's a bit vague. So we're always much more drawn uh, to these things. Uh, Christianity has always been rather... Um, uh, are nervous of, of, of characterising heaven. I mean, and clearly there are, there are, there are some images of it, and you know, the, the, the Paradise Garden, and whatever. Um, but there's always slightly been this idea that um, that afterlife, good afterlife, should be kind of ineffable beyond words, beyond our imagination. And I've sort of got a bit of sympathy with that because if you're going to tell people they've got to lead good lives in order to get this rather wonderful afterlife, um, if you can imagine exactly what it's going to be like then, it, then it, it, it doesn't feel like much to uh, um, uh, aspire to. In the 19th century, there was a very famous book uh, published in America, I think it was the bestseller of the 19th century in America, called The Gates Ajar, um, which was a, 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 an account of, of reunion in heaven, where basically it was, it was like life on earth, apart from all the bad people had been taken out. Um, and, uh, you know, gingham tablecloth, piano in the corner, and all of those things. Um, and um, Mark Twain, um, who was a great thinker about immortality, he said uh, that it was the biggest disqualification he could think of for ideas of heaven. He called that idea a cheap little 10-cent heaven. That's what he thought. So there's always been that idea that heaven should be almost beyond our imagination, which you could see as a rather inspiring idea, and you could see as a bit of a cop-out by religion. And, and um, Jay, that business about resurrection and the orientation of... of burials and graves. Yeah. I, I don't know, is that something you observe extensively in, your, in the archaeology within London? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the Christian cemeteries are always very regularly head in the west, feet in the east, lying on your back supine. So, I mean, the reason for that is so that on that resurrection day, you're able to sit up and face the east. Mm. Yeah. Extraordinary. And it's very, very consistent. Um, but you get plenty of examples where people are actually, you know, buried in a different way, face down, really bad. You know, it suggests that that person is being punished in death, possibly and, and that is punished in life first, and then, and then again in the burial position. And that is consistently a, a, a perceived as a punishment, because isn't there something, and again, in, tra in Jewish tradition, where is there a history of burial vertical and... and no, no, no. That's a, that's a terrible. That's an anti-Semitic right. kind of lie. Right. Um, really. That, that the idea where that comes from. The idea that Jews are buried with buried standing uh, comes from um, Christian anti-Semitism. So in cities like Prague, famously the Jewish cemetery in Prague, where the gravestones are all all, all together. Um, what happened there was because the wretched Christians wouldn't, wouldn't allow the Jews the freedom to expand their cemetery in any way, uh, the Jews had to bury level upon level upon level. Um, so, you know, there'd be seven or eight levels in the cemetery because they couldn't get any more ground to bury with. Uh, but in Jewish tradition, you, you, there, always has to be, there always had to be a stone on the grave. So as level upon level, so when they put a new level on, they'd lift all the stones, put the next level on, put one stone there, then another one. So obviously over six or seven le levels, you get get seven stones over one grave, and this anti-Semitic lie uh, 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 that Jews were buried standing up. Sorry, just, I just, there's so much horrible anti-Semitism in Christianity, you just, it's, it's uh, yeah. 
I just wonder that that business about a place of sleep and your work and, and your co-workers and indeed the builders and, and, and people who are digging hundreds of skulls out of the earth, is there any sense of disturbing that and the reverence that maybe is needed for that sort of work? I, it, it, it was, that, that image was really striking of the, of the truck full of earth with, I think, three or two skulls yeah. and a pot on top of it. Yeah, it's, I mean, the sensitivity, you know, of us as individuals today encountering these human remains is a very real one. Um, and probably out of 100 people or so that worked on the project, some people are more sensitive to it uh, than others. Generally, the archaeologist, you know, has multiple experience of encountering human remains, um, you know, and therefore, you know, they become slightly anaesthetized to it, I would suggest. Uh, but there's a, there's a kind of feeling as well that the general public expects the work to be done very carefully, with great respect, so we have a lot of rules about ensuring that that type of operation is covered from view and that the general public or the local office worker can't, you know, see casually the human remains being exhumed from the ground. And, and the problem with that uh, feels almost voyeuristic. I, it, yeah, so we do, you know, make sure that that isn't the case and that's part of the sensitive approach to removing human remains from the ground because after all, we don't want to remove them. Nobody really does. No. It's always something that comes around as a, uh, an urgent necessity due to development. We, we have slightly double standards on this, though, I think, if you think about it. Um, certainly what happened, uh, we saw the well-ordered graveyards there. In, um, in medieval church, country churchyards in particular, uh, they would often have a common pit. Um, where uh, rather than the, the, the sort of predating individual graves, but, but when they, even when they started having individual graves, that would tend to be for wealthy people. So if you were poor, um, you know, I would have ended up in, 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 in the common pit there. And they literally just chucked bodies into the common pit. They didn't lay them all neatly in, in, in you know, country graveyards that have been um, uh, excavated. So there was no great ceremony and dignity around that. And of course, they'd leave the common pit open for a long time because they had to get in as many as possible before they covered it. And then at various stages, not, you don't see them so much in this country because of the, the, the Reformation here, uh, but uh, there are a few. There's, one, there's a wonderful one down in Hastings, uh, but you'll see them in many uh, European countries, the charnel houses, uh, where they take an ossuaries, where they take all the bones. And in some really ghastly examples, there's a great one. If you're ever in Rome, at the bottom of the Via Veneto, there's a church called, someone's nodding, they've been there, Santa Maria della Conciliazione, hard to say at this time of day. Um, they, um, the Franciscans there, they got all, they got all the bones and they, they organised them into pretty patterns on the wall when they did that. So, you know, the church may tell us to have great reverence around the dead, but actually it hasn't always had reverence itself. And, of course, in scattering, you know, we're very keen on scattering ashes now. There is actually a professional class of scatterers. You can hire a scatterer now to scatter your ashes for the very simple reason that we, we spend a lot of time in North Norfolk, and if anyone knows the beaches there, they're very beautiful, but there's a bit of a north wind coming all the time. And I've seen people on Skullhead Island doing the scattering who don't know it very well. And if you stand the wrong way, I mean, frankly, straight back in your face. Um, so, you know, uh, reference is very important. It's great that you show reference, and I'm sure I'd be one of the people hypocritically suggesting you have to do it. But actually, the reality is that we, we're not always as reverent as we think we are, really. But, but uh, just expanding the, the excavations you're doing, it is interesting to me that it would appear that even in the Black Death, when presumably bodies were appearing at, at an alarming rate, 
burials were still observed and mostly um, very carefully done. I almost imagine the bodies were cremated at that time, just practicality if nothing else. But uh, was cremation <clears throat> used then or not? No, no, it wasn't. Right. Not, not in England. But there was um, a lot of historical accounts uh, of that period describing that you know, bodies were littering the, the, the streets, they were thrown into the river, cast into huge pits, exactly as Peter just described, uh, for the country churchyard scene. And that's, I think, what we expect when we encounter, uh, you know, historical plague outbreaks, is, is kind of mass panic and, and get a big pit open and, and get everyone buried. And we were very surprised in that particular case in uh, Farringdon Charterhouse Square to find, you know, such a a well-organized and managed event, you know, of individual graves, you know, and very, very careful interment, you know, in shrouds. There's no clothing with these, any of these burials. So they were prepared, apparently, in the, in the normal way, within something that was, you know, obviously an emergency uh, situation. We found that really interesting. Mm. Are they, are they and men and women? Yeah, I, I was going to say, I, I, I mix. I mix. it was a very months. small example of what is probably a very large cemetery. So it's not impossible there are mass graves mm -hmm. uh, in that larger cemetery. But within that small example, uh, a real mixture of, you know, different ages and genders. Gosh. And the same was true of Bedlam, is it? Yeah, Bedlam was a, a municipal burial ground for the whole city population. So very, very diverse. And that's what's so interesting about it is that it's the only cemetery in London, really, that, that represents all of London at that time. So there is, there is rich and poor, um, there is young and old, you know, there are professionals, there are uh, a lot of working people and a lot of destitute people, people out of the prison. So it's really a unique collection of human remains to, you know, give us a view of the 16th century from the individual person's point of view rather than the historian's point of view, which, of course, is always, you know, subject to checking. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> so and it's a, yeah, unique opportunity. Uh, have you unraveled the mystery of these skulls, or uh, as in, were they buried, or were they just at the riverbed? No, we haven't unraveled the mystery. There's, there's lots of different um, ideas. The, the very first um, discoveries made, say, back in the 1840s, were that these skulls were the victims uh, Roman victims of the Boudican revolt. So the insurrection, you know, by the British tribes against the Roman imperial occupation. Uh, but, in fact, further discoveries indicate uh, that that can't be the case because they're all the wrong date. They're a hundred years too late mm. to be associated with that event. There's still a possibility that there were other insurrections taking place in the second, third century. Um, and then another very favorite um, explanation is they are just there uh, due to natural forces. And that the river Warbrook in flood and erosion has collected these human remains together and but sorted them. the skulls. skulls. Sorted the skulls because they're a particular shape. This is the theory. Yeah. And that the other bones are you know, off somewhere else. Yeah, that they, they perhaps roll along the bottom, they float, <laughs> they, they gather together. I think it's quite an extraordinary uh, thing to, uh, you know, believe that only natural agency is involved and that human selection is probably involved too. 
I think. Particularly with the example I showed where skulls are lined uh, in a ditch alongside a road, you know, and that ditch doesn't have the same kind of energy uh, erosionally, you know, as the river itself. So something else is going on there. The thing about seeing skulls alongside a road is you start to think about display yes. of skulls mm -hmm. and the Romans and their head cults and their obsession with displaying their enemies' heads. As some sort of warning. Alongside a road, yeah. yeah. You know, we can't, can't ignore the fact that that is a very common theme, you know, in Roman history. And presumably also denying those people burial in some way or another. Yeah. So it's a very odd, it's a very odd situation. I mean, it's very, it's, it's very difficult to arrive at answers, but there's certain things that archaeological science can do to help us, you know, with the context at least. You know, were these um, individuals local Britons, or were they legionnaires uh, from the, the Roman army, and therefore possibly from all across Europe and Africa, North Africa. And that's the kind of thing we'll look at by doing studies uh, such as stable isotope. I mean, that's, 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 that's the, great, the, great, the great thing about cemeteries is, is that thing of teaching us history, in a sense, of allowing us to discover our own history. But I think what they also tell us is a kind of is a history of our ideas about mortality as to how, how we've regarded death. Um, uh, if you look at the different ways people were buried, kind of collectively or individually, or you know, and the, uh, the way that we mark their graves or don't mark their graves, it tell, tells us a lot about, about what, what, we, what we've thought of death. And uh, I walk my dog round, or my, let's call it my children's dog, because they were the ones who wanted it. But I walk the dog, um, <laughs> obviously I walk the dog. Uh, I walk the dog. Uh, just to be bitter about it, um, every day uh, around the cemetery, which was reluctant at first, but actually what it also, I think, tells you, and it's really quite interesting in, in whatever, what year, in 2015, uh, where we do have a bit of a cult of not thinking about death. Uh, you know, life is all about sort of eating the right food or jogging, or if you're a middle-aged man, getting lycra and going around on a bicycle to keep yourself healthy. And we push death to, the, to do with the decline of religion and, and any form of, of ritual or framing of questions around mortality. We're, we're, we've sort of lost that with religion uh, for, for good and for ill. Um, but what cemeteries do when you walk around is they just make you think about it. Um, I mean, you hope that you're thinking about it in a relatively dispassionate way, because you think, well, they were 87, so I've got a while to go yet, um, even if the lights are making me look older. Um, and, um, but it, it just does bring you face to face, and I do think there is a thing about where we, we, and those of you who are doctors obviously will have a completely different experience for this, but I think for the rest of us, we sort of rather shrink away from... from um, the, the kind of smell and the touch and the feel and, uh, of, of, of our own mortality, really. I mean, I was 38 before I saw a dead body, um, and I can't blame my Catholic school for that. But, um, but you know, it just, it just, we, we just don't do it anymore. It's all about those neat curtains at crematoriums when, you know, oh, let's pull the curtain. It's so ghastly, that idea, and sort of coffins and covering things up and, and uh, you know... I can rem I'm old enough to remember when my grandmother died in Liverpool, um, having a wake with the coffin in the middle of the room. And actually, that was when I was five or six. Bizarrely, about three doors down from us, I live in Kilburn in London, so you know, County Kilburn that was, our very elderly next-door neighbour, um, he died, and his family had him in the, in, the, in the coffin in the front room. 
And even though I'd written about this and thought about it and thought, it's so bad we don't do this, I was standing there. It was a very small room, it has to be said. He was a very tall man in his coffin. And we were all standing around having a drink. And then the undertaker came in and said, I'm just going to give Jack a quick shave now. At which date I had to leave because it, it was just all too much. So, you know, we don't do mortality in that way. The rest of us, you doctors obviously do. Just, just before we raise the house lights, uh, just right at the beginning of um, Nick Lane's discussion with, with Sam, um, he, he, I think, equated um, life to a flow of energy. And I just wonder if that's true, then are, and I think you've already answered this, but maybe just a very brief comment, are graveyards and are, are burials without any energy that, that I get the sense from what you say. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people do believe that there's a lot of energy there. Um, <laughs> Sorry. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a little bit detached <laughs> from that. I mean, I don't, I don't feel the energy, although we've had some really interesting occasions where, um, you know, individual mediums have actually um, visited the team and shown great concern for the, for the job that we do and the work we do on a daily basis. Great concern. I'm they've, not, a, I'm not a medium, by the way. They've, <laughs> they've uh, yeah, this particular um, you know, group of people are extremely worried when human remains are disturbed, and they can obviously feel something, yeah. you imagine. It's not, uh, it's not so much feeling something, it's something else that Nick said, which I thought was really important, um, which is that sense of human connection down a chain, really. Um, that, that, that comes to, to those of us who are fortunate enough to have children, uh, that there's that, 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 that sense of a human connection back through things. Uh, but I think human to human, human being to human being, and particularly what, you know, once we get into the, uh, the 17th century and you start reading gravestones and you wander around and read people's stories, and I just think there's an energy there because you read. You, I mean, and sometimes, uh, sorry, terribly cruel father, I used to make my children go around the cemetery with the dog, and um, I used to make them practice mathematics by doing the dates on the, you know, the things. <laughs> Yeah. Push, push. And um, uh, one of them's at medical college now, so hey, it worked. And, um, and, but I do think there's that thing, it, it, it just it links you, and you think, gosh, you know, there was, there's one woman I always think about, I see her, I go past her, I go see her every day, I walk past her grave every day. And, you know, her husband died, you know, when she was 23, her children died about, three of them died afterwards, it's called Magdalena Van Rin. And she lived to be 98. I mean, and then you start thinking, how must that have felt? How must that have been to live 70 years of your life uh, with the, the, the people most intimate and close with you? So I do think there's an energy, and I do think it reflects on our own life, not in a kind of creepy medium sort of talking to the dead nonsense thing, but just there's an energy that we are all human beings and we're connected, and a cemetery somewhere where we can be connected. Okay, I wonder if we could have the house lights up. I'm sure there will be a number of questions from the audience, and I'm struggling to see at the minute. So. At the back there, have we got a mic for...? Hi, just, just on a practical level, when you've, you've obviously excavating to create building work, and therefore those bones, I guess, need to be moved, um, how are they uh, reburied, how are they respected, given that some of them will be Christian burials, and some of them you're uncertain as to what their religious beliefs might have been. So just wonder if you could tell yeah. us something about um, that. Yeah, there's two kind of very distinct um, destinations, uh, one of which is reburial within a consecrated... Uh, well, sorry, the wording actually now is uh, within a place where it's legal to make burials. That's what the Ministry of Justice describe it as. So we do have a duty uh, for... 
the burials which are associated uh, with an original Christian cemetery to rebury. There's an opportunity to study in the first place. And then the other destination is where the human remains are deemed by academics to be rare enough and important enough to retain, then those will be retained in a collection of human remains. And that'll, that'll probably apply to the examples of Roman human remains that I showed. Yeah, for sure. Uh, there's not really so much you know, public pressure to rebury human remains from most quarters, uh, where they're not demonstrably part of uh, a religious tradition. But there are a lot of people who, who want everything reburied, of course. There's one up the top here. Do we have a mic down here? The question's been raised about how methods of burial reflect the values and beliefs at the time. And there's a huge spectrum, for example, between like Celts who buried their dead with all sorts of all the things they might need for the next life towards that more puritanical Christian thing where people were buried in nothing at all. And I was wondering, Jay mentioned the point at which um, coffins started to be used. So presumably for a long time, the body was straight in the ground. Then we had coffins. I'm, I'm interested to know what that signified, or did it signify anything at all? Do we read too much into it? Yeah, I mean, shrouds as well, was for very, very many centuries, the, the classic burial, you know, in a, in a sheet. Uh, coffins do start appearing. I mean, I'm, I'm not... Um, sure about what it signifies. Um, we're um, certainly aware that it, it happens yeah. and it starts to become a trend. Um, the, I mean, the, shroud, the shrouds are interesting because it, it depended what area you were in. Often you'd have a linen shroud, but in, in wool towns, and I think there are wool, there's a, there's a, there are wool towns in the Cotswolds, weren't there? Um, people there would be buried in, in a woolen shroud, so off, often what was going around. I mean, the original Jewish idea, and still the Jewish idea, is that you're buried you're into, this, into this world, you come with nothing and you leave with nothing as well. Um, when you mentioned the Celts, it's really fascinating because the Celts sort of blurred the edges between life and death. And there's a, well, I don't know, again, if any of you have been there, there's a wonderful place off the end of, sorry, my Welsh isn't very good either, off the end of the Clean Peninsula, L-L-E-Y-N Peninsula, um, uh, called Bardsey Island, which they call the Island of 20,000 Saints. I mean, it's tiny, it's probably about as big as a stage. And uh, so, um, and, and um, Celtic monks used to go there to go there to die, in a way, because they believed they were going towards the Isles of the Blessed, which were out into the kind of Atlantic, and they'd be buried there. And there was a sense that when you were there, you were in a sort of halfway stage between, between kind of life and death. So that's often why the, the worldly goods are around them. Uh, the coffin thing... Um, I mean, it used to be a thing of affluence, obviously, um, and, and so obviously greater democracy, you know, the, the rise of the middle class in, in some ways, it explains why coffins started coming in. So if you go back to ancient Rome, um, underneath, the, underneath St. Peter's, if you ever go, if you, if you know you're going to Rome and you've got about two or three weeks before you go, go online to the Vatican's website, just put Vatican in, and look up the Scarvi, S-C-A-V-I, Scarvi Excavations in Italian, and you can go and visit the original pagan necropolis underneath St. Peter's, they've excavated it and you can see how Romans buried there and often then they would use coffins as well because you, you, would, you would have that place if you were, if you were going to a sarcophagi or whatever, so I think it was a thing of, of, of affluence mainly and then as you got at the rising middle class so you, know, you wanted to show you were as good as the Lord of the Manor, uh, so you know, Carson and Downton Abbey would therefore be allowed to have a coffin as well as the Earl of Grantham I think was the idea. Yeah, and perhaps also the, you know, the developing commercialization as well yes, in those yeah, searches yeah. that, you know, it's a big business, of course, coffin making, and, you know, perhaps in that 16th century, you know, it's just they part of that same, you know, revolution, really. Yeah, I think we've got time for one more front here. 
Oh, okay. Well, I'm curious about the idea of the sort of fascination of being remembered, how people always want to leave something behind, really, with, like, gravestones, etc. I wonder if that's always been a theme throughout history, or people always want there's something to be left behind for them to have some effect on human history, almost. So if people didn't catch that, that was the, the, the linkage with wanting to be remembered and burial. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. I think with the, the uh, interestingly, with the common pits that I was talking about in those, in those uh, country churchyards... Um, there, was, there was nothing physical left behind. I mean, obviously, there were the bones, but and people didn't even visit. They wouldn't go and visit the common pit. The remembering would be done by the community in the church. So there was a sense in which the remembrance was in here and not, uh, there wasn't a kind of physical remembrance in, in, in that way. But I do think we've, we, we, you know, certainly for the last five, 500 years, we, 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 we've had a sense that we, that we somehow want to be remembered. We're changing. I mean, if you go to those, uh, the eco-cemeteries, uh, the uh, natural burial grounds, um, they ha- they're very clear about not having kind of stone monuments there. I think the very best you can manage is, is a little wooden monument that will kind of rot with the earth, in a sense, and rot with your body. So they, they've there. I've just got... My, my favourite story about all of this is of this obsession we have about, um, about uh, remembering ourselves. In Père Lachaise Cemetery, I don't know if you've ever been there, full of incredibly famous people, but the biggest monument by far is just this enormous tower in the middle of it all where some poor soul decided that he was so important that he was going to build himself the biggest monument ever, so people would always, always remember him. And in a funny sort of way, he was right, because they remember him as the man that no one can remember, because you go there, and he was an architect called, I think, Louis de Beaujour, or Beaujon or something, and he's so forgotten, he doesn't even have a, a Wikipedia entry uh, now, which is surely is the mark of anything, and this enormous monument, and then if you compare it with my favourite, one of my favourite, favourite cemeteries, which is what they still call either the English or the Protestant cemetery in Rome, uh, where you have Keats's graveyard. And Keats, of course, didn't want his name written on his grave. It says, here lies one whose name was written in water, because he believed he'd been a failure and no one would remember him. So there's silly old uh, Baron Beaujol with his great big <laughs> tower. Uh, it looks like something else, but anyway, let's not go there. And there is, um, and there is Keats. And everyone flocks to Keats's graveyard because he didn't want to be remembered. So you can, don't try and plan ahead. You can get it very wrong. <laughs> That, um, that feels like the perfect point to end, uh, except at, at the risk of lowering the tone, I'm going to tell a joke. So t- two, two men walking in a graveyard with their dogs on the end of a lead, and one turns to the other and says, morning, and the other one says, no, just walking my dog. <laughs> um, so with that thought, um, we will be breaking for coffee. Okay. <laughs> We'll be breaking for coffee in uh, two or three minutes, but just prior to that, uh, we have uh, a musical interlude from Jocelyn Pook. <laughs> 